It's a question that I think most adults and most people who have thought about jobs have had to grapple with. How do you think about work? Some people think work is really central to who we are. Being productive in some sense is really attached to their sense of self-worth. And for other people, work is just a way to pay the bills. Ultimately, it boils down to this question. Does work matter in some fundamental way? This is the final episode in our 12-part series on work. We've talked about automation, the gig economy, trade unions, and so many other ways that technology is changing the world of work. Today's episode is going to be about how we think about work, philosophically, culturally, and societally. We're going to be discussing how we should think about work and whether especially these technological changes have somehow fundamentally altered our relationship with work. I'm joined by a French philosopher from Australia whose research is all about the philosophy of work and draws on his wide reading of the literature from other fields as well that we've mentioned in this series. I got a lot out of this conversation and I think you will too. Just a quick note on this episode. Firstly, you'll notice that it's longer than our usual episodes. I haven't cut it down as much as I could have done because I think it's all really valuable stuff. But having said that, I have put detailed timestamps in the description, so if you want to, you can skip to a section which particularly interests you. Secondly, I have edited and produced this episode in a way that it is, as always, accessible, so you don't need any prior knowledge. There are passing references to philosophers, but don't be put off by those if you haven't heard of any of these people. The names aren't important for understanding the ideas in this episode. With all that said, here's my guest for today. Hello, everyone. I'm Jean-Philippe de Ramsey. I'm a professor of philosophy at Macquarie University in Sydney. And for about the last 10 years, I've been working on issues of work from all kinds of, of angles. And maybe we'll talk about it in the podcast a bit later on. I've, I'm editing, I'm, I'm compiling a, an online repository on debates on the importance of work. So more precisely, I work on something I call the case for work. So I try to study arguments against the idea that work is important or even central. And then I try to come up with rejoinders uh, to defend the idea that work is important. Yeah, the work repository is a brilliant resource, which I used myself quite a lot in making this series. It's very carefully organized library of resources about all sorts of academic research on work in a whole range of fields um, and i will leave the link in the show notes for listeners to check it out if they're interested but just briefly why did you start this originally and what is its aim i've been working with colleagues and friends in france for 10 years now on this idea of the centrality of work it's based on initially on research by a really well-known scholar in France called Christophe Dejour. And we've extended his ideas. He's a psychologist, a psychiatrist, so he was very interested in the impact of work on, on the health of people, the physical health and the psychological mental health of people. But with a group of, of friends who are philosophers, we extended his argument into different areas of, of concern. So social thought, um, different, uh, different issues in, in politics, political philosophy. And after a while of doing that work, I became interested in trying to map out the different types of arguments you come across when you do that research. And there are many of them arguing against the value of work or the importance of work or even the centrality of work. And so... As a, as a way, in a sense, of, for, of wrapping up that long project on work, I decided to, to do a research on trying to do some type of systematic exhaustive map of arguments against work and, um, and, then, and then trying to formulate some rejoinders to these objections to work. So... In the background of a lot of the changes we've talked about in this podcast series on work, whether that be the casualization of work into gig work, whether that be 
opposition to trade unions. A lot of this can be understood under the label of neoliberalism. Now, neoliberalism is a term that's thrown around all the time, but generally speaking, how does a neoliberal think about work from your perspective? It's a it's a very very complex and and rich issue, as you say. Um, so much has been written already and continues to be published on this. There are very very good histories of neoliberalism, of the rise of the neoliberal school of thought and neoliberal politics. And in those narratives, there's always a special place for work, of course, because neoliberalism is both at the same time a political theory, a theory of how to organize the the polis, the the, the collective, the nation, and, of course, it's premised on an economic theory. It basically tries to solve issues of of politics, of political theory, by applying models coming from neoclassical economics. So there's so much written on this, um, and you know, by people who are probably better placed than philosophers uh, to 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 answer the questions: so sociologists, economic theorists, political scientists, and historians. So. The, the the perspective that philosophers can take on the question of neoliberalism and work, I think, is by emphasizing how much philosophy there is in neoliberalism. It's not just a, a guide for, for policy making, uh, and it's not just an economic theory. Neoliberalism is, is a first and foremost, I would say, a political philosophy. It's a vision of justice. It's a vision of a fair organization of the state. Uh, it's a vision of what the state owes its citizens and what citizens owe to the state and each other. Uh, and all of this is, is basically premised on, on philosophical ideas. So that's where I think uh, philosophers can come in. And first of all, it's just simply reminding people of that. Um, the, the most famous... Um, the, the most famous aspects of neoliberalism are always premised on very strong justifications, which in the end come down to a vision of freedom and justice, very particular definitions of freedom and justice, and basically, and that's quite well known, a, 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 an anchoring of freedom in property and a defense of the value of property well, precisely for strong normative reasons, uh, for, for moral reasons almost. Um, property as a, something that ought to be defended because basically it defines the person and their freedom. So that's, a, that's what philosophers can do. Um, and so on the issue of neoliberalism and work, I think one particularly useful reference remains the study of it that was done by Michel Foucault in the early 1980s. Uh, it's a kind of paradoxical answer because so much has been written in the last 30 years or 40 years on neoliberalism. Yet Foucault's study, I think, uh, remains a really valid reference if you want to highlight this philosophical dimensions or dimension of neoliberalism. Uh, Foucault, in uh, studies uh, on the birth of biopolitics, which in fact is uh, a book that retraces the rise of, of neoliberalism in Europe and the United States, Foucault highlights really well the very specific way in which neoliberals approach the vision of society and in particular apply this to the question of work. Uh, so Foucault has this really striking claim. He says that as a matter of fact, despite appearances to the contrary, what work means to workers is not really taken seriously or taken into account in Marxist and Keynesian analysis, economic theories and economics of uh, theories of, of, uh, of politics. And he thinks that's because that, that's for methodological reasons. Work in Marxism and Keynesianism, he thinks, is treated as a kind of macro category, not in terms of an activity by a worker in which a worker, a person, an individual invests based on their own interests and the goals that they pursue, which is what the philosophy of neoliberalism will try to formalize, 
So in Marxism and Keynesianism, you don't look at work from the point of view, the subjective point of view of the worker, but you treat it as big, big aggregates that take, that are manipulated in, in macroeconomic formulations. And so Foucault has this amazing passage um, where speaking on behalf of Chicago School economics, uh, so the, the type of economics that are applied from the University of Chicago to all possible social problems. So Foucault reconstructs Chicago School economics, and then he writes, using this, we adopt, as I, I, I quote from uh, the book, we adopt the point of view of the worker, and for the first time, ensure that the worker is not present in the economic analysis as an object, the object of supply and demand in the form of labor power, but, a, but as an active economic subject. So that's that's typically a very interesting philosophical remark, uh, and it's very controversial, of course, and very paradoxical. Um, Foucault makes the claim that only neoliberalism is a work looked at or studied, formalized from the point of view of the investment of the worker in their own activity for the ends that they pursue individually. Now, of course, Foucault makes his claim in a kind of paradoxical and provocative way, of course. And at the time, he clearly writes against, well, Marxist analysis, especially. And of course, his, his interpretation is, is debatable. But I think we need to separate two things here with this Foucault reference. One is that he might actually be getting th- something right about the approach to work under neoliberalism when he uh, emphasizes the way in which from a neoliberal point of view, each and every one of us approaches their work in terms of, in kind of, in this kind of rash, formal rational terms of how is work going to be an investment that is worthwhile for me to make given the ends that I have, where work is considered as literally as a type of investment of my own resources not just my financial resources, but my time and my personal resources, my, my strength, my knowledges, my education. When you, when you read Foucault, you, you can see that he does capture this neoliberal way of looking at each and every one of us being responsible for the way in which we invest our own capital, where our very person is a cap- form of capital. So human capital and how it's invested. And if that's how we should formalize work, then clearly this has major uh, implications for responsibility. Because in the end, it's each and every one of us who is responsible for how we invest our own personal capital, and indeed how well or not so well we do that. And so you can see how from this philosophical angle, from this idea of formal rationality of personal investment, which seems to have a kind of positive story behind it. And that's what I wanted to say. Foucault provocatively says, well, the neoliberals are the only ones who really care for workers, provocatively. So he puts a positive spin on Chicago school economics. But of course, we can be, we can, you know, pursue the thread that uh, has been uh, opened by, by Foucault and say, well, yes, but there's something a little bit more sinister about this in the end, because clearly, as we all know, the market is not fair. There are asymmetries of power. So it's not the case that, as a matter of fact, each and every one of us starts on a kind of fair starting point baseline so that we are all, so that it would be fair to say that we are fully responsible for what happens to us at work. For the case of us not finding work, because we would have badly invested in ourselves, Etc. Etc. So this idea of, you know, to put it in a kind of strong way, which is not put like this by neoliberals, but absolute individual responsibility for one's own fate, that idea is premised upon a, a, a method for looking at um, all kinds of problems using economic uh, an economic model, but it has very strong. Uh, social, political, moral consequences, this idea of total responsibility. So that would be my first, the first point I would raise amongst many other possible one. The, the second one is something that I, I mentioned to you, Patty, before 
and you were you were interested in it. And it's this idea of from this philosophy of individualized investment in one's own fate through work, if it has to be through work, right? So we use our own capacity to achieve our ends, and for many of us, it means through forms of work. So it can be because we enjoy type of activity, so we embrace a profession, or we just need money to fulfill our ends, and so we need an income, and therefore we have to work. So we invest capital to achieve the ends that are our own uh, possible ends. The second point I wanted to raise, just to give an example of perhaps where uh, philosophers can can add something to the debate, is in terms of if we follow the thread all the way, then we can we can understand perhaps something about neoliberalism and work, which is its paradoxical work ethic. On the one hand, very famously, probably especially true in English-speaking countries, so I live in Australia and you, Paddy, are in the UK, and I'm sure you would hear similar things in, in the US, there seems to be this continuing very strong injunction for everyone to work. So work as an end in itself, which is, which is very reminiscent of the old-style work ethic as analyzed by Max Weber. So that's one thing about neoliberalism and work. Work almost as an end in itself, as an ultimate value. And, you know, there are very famous philosophical references that one can mobilize to try and, and show why there is a strong link in neoliberalism, philosophically speaking, between freedom, justice, individual freedom, and work, typically John Locke. Yet, on the other hand, if you look carefully you realize that in the writings of the major neoliberals, in fact, they very explicitly and clearly disconnect social success from work. That is to say, what I mean by that is, in German sociology, there's this idea of the, that, that modern society is somehow premised on what they call the principle of achievement. It's supposed to be a principle of justice of modern society that you should get the social rewards that are commensurate with the uh, value of your achievements, and typically your achievements, through your efforts. And for most people, that means through work. So fairness should be fairness in the social rewards of your achievements. And neoliberals are totally dismissive of it, at least uh, some of them, at least, for example, Hayek. They say that the principle of achievement is null, does not count, because there are just so many contingencies in the way in which uh, particular efforts are rewarded socially that, sh that we should not count on it. So on the one hand, neoliberals seem to have this injunction of working hard, working for its own sake, etc., the old style of work ethic. But on the other hand, they, ha they have a kind of laissez-faire or libertarian work ethic, which is that if you can be successful without doing very much, or with productions which on some scale are worth less than others, yet you are successful, there's no injustice in that. There is no such thing as a principle of achievement. Uh, and if you can be successful or be very wealthy, for example, without working, if you can do that legally, then there's nothing unfair about that. There's nothing unjust. So typically, for example, if you're lucky on the stock market and you make lots of money, and you become very wealthy, but it's not really through any particular individual performance of yours. It's not through particularly worthy effort on your part. You were just lucky. You just struck gold. Then it's perfectly just for you to be like this. And if you can retire at 25, being very wealthy through pure luck or indeed through inheritance, then that's, then that's perfectly fair. So on the one hand, <laughs> this is all-star work ethic. And on the other hand, there's this complete justification for wealth without work or positions of, of great um, opulence without, uh, without individual achievement that would have justified it. And I think you can actually, this, it seems to be a contradiction. Uh, so you seem to have two views of work under neoliberalism that seem to oppose each other. But in fact, they are perfectly consistent if you um, evaluate every normative uh, problem 
in terms of, well, a market logic. That is to say, if you think that fairness is defined purely in terms of the fair uh, evaluation that arises from a transparent exchange between a level of supply and a level of demand, which can apply to anything, including individual efforts, if that's how you define fairness, then if you have struck gold on the stock market or through the lottery or inheritance, then there's nothing there's nothing wrong with that. Well, inheritance is a different problem. It's about property and and uh, the sacredness of property. But so the very the very way of thinking about social life that Foucault has reconstructed so well can justify both at the same time a hard work ethic for those who have not struck gold and uh, no work if you can uh, afford it. So I can, if you want, I can cite a passage from uh, Friedrich Hayek's classic, The Constitution of Liberty. Oh, yes, absolutely. Please do. That makes the point. It's quite amazing. So he says, yeah, so the prizes that a free society offers for the results serve to tell those who strive for them how much effort they are worth. So basically... You know the worth of something, not intrinsically, but simply by how much people value it. However, he says, the same prizes will go to all those who produce the same results regardless of effort. What is true here of the remuneration for the same services rendered by different people is even more true of the relative remuneration for different services requiring different gifts and capacities. They will have little relation to merit. The market will generally offer for services of any kind the value they will have for those who benefit from them. But it will rarely be known whether it was necessary to offer so much in order to obtain the services. And often, no doubt, the community could have had them for much less. So it's not effort or achievement that that, um, is behind value. It's purely people's interest. So if a lot of people have a lot of interest for something that can be produced by someone with no effort, then they are totally entitled to uh, the high reward that they get. And there are many quotes like this in, in Hayek. So there is no principle of achievement. So basically, again, uh, just to put it in a kind of image, if you can retire at 25 after having created your uh, unicorn company and you've sold it for a billion dollars and then you can retire and play golf for your life, well, good for you. That it's absolutely justified. It's not just it's not just uh, justified in terms of property. It's justified even more deeply in terms of the very definition of justice. You offered people something they wanted, and you were rewarded for it. And there's nothing else to justice apart from that. And therefore, if you can afford not to work, then good for you. So that's an, yeah, that's another dimension of neoliberalism and work which is not often uh, highlighted. But I just thought. That's that's a very striking aspect of it, um, and it's I think it's something we see in our in our current world. I was interested by what you said about English speaking countries. Um, listeners might have guessed from your name that you are French, and making fun of the French is something of a national sport in the UK. And people often joke about how the French, for example, will take stereotypically very long lunch breaks. The interesting thing is that that's interpreted generally by English people as a bad thing because it means that um, the French are not working hard, is the implication, rather than that they have good working conditions, that they have proper time off, that they have a a lower stress environment to work in. Yeah, I mean, if you look at, I mean, there are serious sociological studies done on this. and. it's actually not true. I mean, um, French people on average, French workers on average work longer hours than German workers. They might not work as long as, as English workers, but I mean, as you say, there's a small, there are small differences here. And I'm, I'm being, I'm being uh, obviously uh, a bit ironic here in, in labor laws. Uh, so it's possible that French workers work less than English workers, but they don't work much less than, um, than other workers in Europe, and there are, pro- there, I think, there are studies demonstrating that they might work less for some countries in terms of hours, but they are more productive, so their efforts 
tends to be more intensive when they work. Um, and I think a lot of people in France don't have long, long lunches anymore. But, but, but the, cultural, the, cultural, the cultural dimensions of neoliberalism are really, really interesting. Um, and that's why Max Weber is, is still you know, so appealing. And, I mean, Max Weber's thesis about the Protestant roots or Calvinist roots of the capitalist work ethic that is very well known. It's been actually pretty much debunked by serious historians. But this, there does seem something that needs to be explained about this um, harking on this, this strong appeal to hard work ethic in English-speaking countries of, of this viewing work as an end in itself and demanding that those who receive social welfare work for it uh, under the harshest of conditions even, even if they don't like the job, even if they have to travel uh, a lot for it, etc. There's this kind of vision of we don't owe you a living. You need to work hard for your existence. There seems to be something quite Protestant there. That's quite, I think that's quite undeniable. And you've, you've argued that we need a new kind of work ethic, like a new way of, of thinking about work. What, what do you have in mind there? So uh, I'm obviously, you know, I'm not the only one saying this. Like, there's, it's, there's an, there are many scholars today that try to defend the idea that work matters and when it's organized fairly, when it's well-designed, uh, then it can be a source of a number of different good things for people. And the reason why work can damage people so much is precisely because it matters so much. And so I'm not the only one in, in promoting something like a humanist work ethic. Uh, and that's simply a work ethic that recognizes the goods, as philosophers say, the goods that can be attached to work when it is organized justly, very simply. So my colleague at Belfast, Keith Breen, that's his, that's his expression. He talks about a humanist work ethic. Uh, so it's not a work ethic to justify hard work, hard labor, labor for its own sake, with this, these religious undertones that we are sinners and therefore somehow we need to you know, justify our existence on earth or even redeem ourselves on this planet. It's not like that. It's not the old-style Protestant work ethic as analyzed by Weber. It's an ethic because it emphasizes the ethical value of work, basically the way in which work, when it is well-organized and well-designed, can help people flourish, fulfill life goals, develop their personality, develop strong relations with others uh, that are meaningful, give meaning to life, very importantly, um, give a sense of contribution to, 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 to being human in the world, doing something, giving something back, as people say, etc. So all these goods can be analyzed, are analyzed by philosophers, and defending these goods is, is a humanist work ethic. Because on the other side, there are many people who criticize these types of, of defenses of work. So there are many people who criticize existing organizations of work, existing labor markets, uh, particular policies, forms of, you know, all kinds of forms of exploitation at work, etc. So there are many people who criticize empirical dimensions of work, but there are also many philosophers who reject the value of work as such, the very fact that we have to work or, or who reject the arguments of people like me who want to emphasize the value of work. And so there's, there's basically two, two sides, basically two camps in a sense. So the, the humanist work ethic tries to defend work against these, these attacks. And there are many of them. When you say that you defend the value of work, what does that mean exactly? Well, I'm speaking in, in philosophical terms, in, in almost, if you like, in existential or deep psychological or even, in a sense, anthropological terms, which, you know, all, the last term in particular is really not fashionable these days. It's basically, a, it's a very simple idea, and it's an idea that has been around for a long time, and it's very intuitive. It's the idea that work 
well, again, when it's well organized, when it's fairly distributed, when it's when it's not too long or too arduous or too boring, work can have many goods, as philosophers say, attached to it. Um, that's it. So it's trying to analyze, identify these goods, showing that they are not just relative to particular individuals, but they are somehow intrinsic to work activities. And so the idea, the idea is that if a type of work is organized in a particular way, then it will bring these goods. So it's not just relative to particular individuals who happen to like to work, or it's not just relative to a culture, or it's not just a product of capitalistic ideology, or it's not just a modernist bias, if you like. Uh, there are goods attached to the activity of work, which which are intrinsic to work, which and that means, for example, that you might you might be able to uh, achieve those goods through other activities, say through through forms of leisure or through play or through other forms of social interactions, but you are you have every chance of achieving them through good work or meaningful work. And so typically forms of, of personal development. If you think about it, if you ref if you reflect on your own person, on your own life. What are the things that you really, really know for sure? What are the things that you can really do very well? Well, there clearly are the things where you've spent a lot of effort and attention. You've tried to improve yourself. Human beings, why do human beings do these things? There, there have to be particular con con contexts and conditions for you to spend a lot of time and effort and to be motivated to pursue an effort. A lot of the time, not all the time, but a lot of the time, it's because it's in a work context. Because you just have to be answerable to what you do to someone else. And by the way, when I say work, we I'm sure we'll talk about this later on. When I say work, I certainly don't just mean formal paid work, wage work. I have a much broader definition of work, right? So... Real work, that is to say, an activity that is prolonged because it aims to produce an output that is useful for someone, usually someone else, that's work, and that can very much be something that is not attracting a wage, right? It can be volunteer work, it can be work in the family, it can be work for oneself. So work, for me, is a type of activity. It's not an economic sphere. It's not a sphere of society. It's a type of activity. If you look at work like this as a type of activity, an activity that aims to achieve an output that has value for someone else, so it's always social as well. It's all, there's always an other or many others, in fact, involved in work. If you look at work like this, then you, it becomes easy to say, yes, when it's not too arduous, when it's not too imposed upon you, then... It will help you grow. It will help you learn stuff, improve your manual skills, your intellectual skills, your endurance. It will give you a sense of achievement. It will give you meaning, et cetera, et cetera. So this, this is the type of stuff that we talk about under a humanist work ethic, all these different goods uh, that can be achieved through good work or meaningful work. So we've talked about two very different conceptions of work, the one that you argue for, and the neoliberal idea of work. Just on this neoliberal conception, you've emphasised how important responsibility is within it, so responsibility for how you invest your own time and your human capital, for example. If we apply that to changes in the labour market, there are, there are lots of people in the economy... There are lots of people in society who not so long ago would have had probably more stable, um, possibly better paid jobs than they do now um, because their job is more casualised and gig-based than it used to be or maybe because it's been automated. Although it's worth stressing here that as many of our guests have in this series talked about um, contrary to many narratives in the weed in many narratives in the media widespread job destruction from automation is not really what's 
what we're seeing. Regardless, some people are, through no fault of their own, worse off than they used to be because of things like casualization, casualization of work linked to um, increasing gig work and automation. So how would they make sense of that? How would they understand that? So the first thing to say is probably here to reference the, the best sociologists of work who, who work on these issues. Uh, so that's one is in a state called uh, Juliet, I'm not sure how you pronounce her name, Shaw, yeah, Shaw, S-C-H-O-R, Juliet Shaw and, and her colleagues, Avaga, Kallenberg, they study platform work, um, gig work. The conclusions they reach about that is that it's actually very ambiguous or ambivalent, I should say. Some gig work is very exploitative, for sure, um, and terrible working conditions. Some platform work is very destructive of people, as we know. And typically, if you have to screen uh, content on YouTube, you have to screen horrible stuff all day long, and it's very damaging for for your mental health. Um, if you're confused by this comment, there's a group of people known as AI trainers who do work like training content moderation systems. And as you can imagine, that content is often pretty terrible. Um, we talked about this in depth in our episode, The Quantified Worker with Phoebe Moore. So check that out when you finish listening to this. But not all platform work and not all gig work is like that. And so, so sociologists of work who studied carefully they have a much more ambivalent picture. They draw a much more ambivalent picture of, of platform work and gig work. Now, in terms of the neoliberal uh, vision of it, I mean, the, the, the basic assumption is that as long as there has been a formal agreement between a job seeker and someone who provides a job, as long as this formal agreement has been in place, uh, then the laws of the market dictate that the agreement is fair. Because if, for example, the job seeker was not happy about the pay or the conditions, they could leave. So the very fact that they signed a contract means that they're happy with it. They, the two parties reached a compromise position, and that's the fair price for that work in that condition. That's that's a basic, I mean, you know, it's a kind of caricature of it, but it's a basic way in which things are justified in a neoliberal vision of uh, interactions, notably on the labor market. And so there's no problem. Um, for, from that point of view, there is no problem. If people are not happy, they can always leave. That's the idea. That's the economic theory. The wages have the levels at which that particular word work commands that particular type of, of price, and that's it. Now, that's that would be kind of the baseline justification. Now, if you look at it from a kind of broader perspective, uh, it seems pretty obvious. I mean, you can very easily bring in critical references here, you know, Marx or not Marx, but it's it seems very... I don't want to... Uh, preempt the answer, but it seems very tempting to say that what's going on in many sectors of, in many industries, in many sectors of the labor market is that automation and the structure of platform work, which are two different things, I mean, they're linked, but they're two different things, is a great way for employers to reduce um, what they owe to workers in terms of peasant condition, pay and conditions. You know, there's a power, there's a power balance here going on, and it seems pretty obvious that new technologies, that's true also in, in digital management, um, new technologies, algorithmic management, I should say, it's clear that in many situations, but certainly not all of them, but in many situations, the new technologies, um, AI, allow employers to exert more power and therefore to scale down what used to be uh, offered to workers in the past. That seems, that seems pretty easy to, uh, to substantiate. 
and then of course you know if you as soon as if you want to uh, if you want to look at the current economy specifically as a capitalist economy let's say in marxist systems that is to say as driven by the aim of deriving constantly increasing surplus value from uh, work efforts then you have a very easy framework to analyze the introduction of automation ai algorithmic management platform organizations of work in those terms it's very easy to do and of course there are really good scholars who do that obviously um, I, i just try to stay as neutral as i can on this but i just want to signal that it's it's not difficult to do this type of analysis that that uh, new technologies are powerful tools for for let's say to use a big word capitalists <laughs> and of course there's a long history of there's a long history of analyzing new technologies the introduction of new technologies in those terms not just a pure neutral improvements in technical production in, in the techniques of production but as constant tools in the long battle between uh, labor and capital i mean obviously many many uh, great uh, books on this you know story histories of it etc and, and and theories of it of course yes and and in the literature on platform work there are many analyses that argue in this way and we've touched on this idea of centrality of work but it's going to be important when we talk about its implications in a minute in a whole range of contexts so i'd really like to just start off by clarifying what do you mean by the centrality of work i mean obviously it's something to do with work being really important or some kind of focal point but could you just flesh flesh that out for us sure so i think you probably you probably got a sense of what i mean by that from from what i was saying before initially it's a very simple idea it's i mean so it all depends how serious you how seriously you take the term itself centrality is it just a metaphor to say that something is very important or significant or are you trying to say something more precise when you say centrality and there are debates around that um the term itself for me at least comes from this uh, this work by Christophe Dejour who is very well known in France a theorist of work uh, he's published many books which have been read by very wide audiences where he analyzes the the situation of the world of work in France in particular and he has developed a very rich model of work a kind of theory of work if you like and he talks about the centrality of work in psychological terms and he is very serious about the term centrality so centrality for him and other people is not just does not just mean very important it doesn't not just mean significance of work it means central in the sense of it's kind of one of the core experiences in individual development around which other personal um lines of evolution structure themselves it's kind of the core of personality and de jour often says that there are two centers to human life love and work so he means it in a psych- in a sense of psychological development and psychological health there are all kinds of experiences we make in social life we interact with all kinds of institutions we have all kind of interactions with others but in his theory and he, he gives you know lots of reasons for why he says that intimate relationships and particularly he's he's trained in psychoanalysis so sexuality on the one hand and the evolution of sexuality particularly in in uh, um in uh, childhood and adolescence on the one hand and on the other hand work are the two big poles or centers of of mental life for him so you can you can understand centrality in that stronger sense uh, in the sense of work as an experience that reaches so deep in the human psyche and the human body that it's not just like any other one it has deep impacts for better or for worse again when it's well enough organized 
then perhaps it structures you in good ways. And perhaps it leads to the flourishing that philosophers talk about. And when it's bad, when it's, when you don't work in conditions of relative freedom, when it's too hard, when it's boring, when it's alienating to speak like Marx, then it destroys you. So that could be the sense of centrality of work. Um, for me, what's really important is to emphasize the idea that when we try to understand why work matters to human beings, it's best not to restrict, to, it's best not to think of work as an economic sphere or as a particular sphere within society, as is usually done. So we have home, society at large, families, school, and then there's work. And so we, we picture the social world as made up of big spheres, which are also institutional complexes, right? So social theorists in the 20th century used to speak like this, right? You have these social spheres and these institutional spheres, and work is one of them, and there are others. And then you study how they interact. I think if you think like this, then you make a basic mistake. And that's the fact that there is work in every social sphere. There's work in the family. Going to school is work for the teachers and the kids and everyone who makes the school happen. The janitors and the, and the, and the school uh, principals and, and the gardener and the kitchen uh, help. They all work at the school. And this, uh, there's work going on in tribunals. So the legal system is supposed to be a social sphere. But there's lots of work going on in a tribunal. There's lots of work going on in parliament and in hospitals. And so you see, every time you mention a social sphere, there's work in it. It's obvious. But if you say that work is one sphere, then you forget about it. So it's more interesting to say that there's work. Work is one type of action, one type of activity humans do in their social life. And then, of course, the work you do in the family might be different from the work, I mean, might, might have different features to the work that you do uh, when you go to work in the office, of course. Of course. But it still works. Therefore, there have to be, I think, overlapping features. There have to be common features between all these different types of work. And philosophers, I mean, that's what I argue. And, you know, it's very debatable because obviously you're going to claim there are common traits to all these different types of action, activity that occur in all these different social spheres. But I do think that there are some minimal features of work you can identify which mark out work activities from other activities. And then if you take those work activities seriously, then I think, I argue, you can understand why it matters. And these are very easy, I think, to list. Work is an effort. So there is always an effort in work. You spend mental energy, intelligence, manual expertise. So there's an effort to produce an outcome that has value for someone and often for someone else. If you just list those very basic features, then I think you isolate work from other activities. And if you think about what each one of those features means, then you realize why, why work matters. Why is work central? Because we have to work. We are animals who can't just go around, you know, sleeping for 20 hours a day like a cat, catch a mouse, eat it, have a little lap in the pond, and then go back to sleep. We can't do that. We, in order to survive and thrive as a society, there's a lot of work going on. It always amuses me when I read post-work theorists how much they ignore the incredible amount of work that goes on every day around them just as they write their books. Just listing what it takes for them to be sitting at a table writing their book on a computer, say, on post-work. Just the amount of human efforts that have had to be, you know, produced for the table to be there, the computer to work, the electricity to run, the, the roof over their head, and the cup of tea on the table. That's millions and millions of people involved in bringing that to them. If you think about work like this, there's so much going on, we're sure not going to run out of it for a long time. 
Now, of course, it, it depends. The other question is how economists categorize it, recognize it, and value it. That's a different question. But why, why is work central? Because we have to do it, okay? And if work is indeed an effort to produce an outcome with value, with true value to someone, then there are so many impositions built into it that it's bound to have a profound impact on us. There's no other way. It's just impossible for it not to have this impact. It's an effort. We have to produce value, so it has to be real value. If it doesn't have value, it's worthless. So if you bring a cup of tea to your partner, it's a little bit of work, and the cup of tea is disgusting, you're going to have to do it again. Value matters a lot. I mean, that's an imposition on us. So whatever work we do, we are under the constraints of the standards of goodness for that work. There are technical, aesthetic, social standards for every bit of work. Because if it does not produce a value, it's worthless. It's like you work for nothing. You have to start again, even making a cup of tea. And we bound to others in many ways when we work, because usually we work for someone else. The, the standards of work tend to be social, cultural. So you can't make a cup of tea just willy-nilly. You know, like if you're a Frenchman, you have no idea how to do it. So you're going to be told certainly how to do it, for example. And uh, yeah, so because of all these constraints around it, it, there's no other way than for it to impact on us. That's why it's central. So it's a form of necessity imposed upon us. Like lots of necessities are built into work. That's why it's often linked with unfreedom. But on the other hand, if you can go through all of this, then you will have learned stuff. You will have done something for someone. You will have produced something valuable. So your action was meaningful because it reached its destination. It fulfilled a need. That's a lot of good stuff. So it can impact badly because it's tiring, but it can impact in a good way because of all the things I've listed. Yeah. Yeah. A particular activity that has lots of uh, prescriptions built into it, which in good circumstances can impact us for the better and in bad circumstances can really uh, damage us. And Dujour talks about the centrality of work, like operating on different levels, operating at a social level, a psychological level. Could you just talk us through that? If you believe in, if you, if you believe in this idea of the centrality of work, then maybe there are three ways in which this is the case. It's a, you can talk about a psychological centrality of work, which is what Dejour has shown in his writings. There's a psychological centrality of work, a social centrality of work, and a political centrality of work. Dejour sometimes even speaks of the cultural centrality of work, which is very interesting. Now, the psychological centrality of work, it's, it's very simple. That's what we've been talking about. It's this idea that the features of work activity are such that the, they're just bound to affect individuals. It's, it's just a very basic idea. Marx in Capital talks, uh, Marx in Capital has some very basic kind of, yeah, very basic definitions of work, of labor, and talks uh, at the start of Capital of expenditure of brain, nerves, and muscle. In the beginning of Capital, he talks about a physiological concept of work. And there's a real insight there. All work involves expenditure of human stuff. Human muscle, human brain cells, human sweat, human knowledge, human skills. Now, some work is so basic that there's very little expenditure. And boredom with, you know, very simple work, boredom is a form of mental stuff in a sense. It's, it's, you expand a negative affect in a sense, right? So the psychological centrality of work is premised on these features of work I've mentioned. Effort, so mobilization of, of individual resources. So all work means you have to bring that to the table and offer it in a sense to the work effort. Uh, so, you know, the, I mean, Adam Smith and Hegel, 
they, they emphasize this idea that when we consume a product made by someone, what we consume is not just the object, the commodity, or the use value. We also ingest, so to speak, the work of the others that is congealed into the object. And so working, a work output is congealed human effort. But if you think about effort seriously, it's effort that is, there's been expenditure. So that's a psychological centrality. Work cannot leave us indifferent. Even work that is indifferent is, uh, is taxing because it becomes boring and dull. For example, if it's too simple or too repetitive. Okay? So the psychological centrality of work, it's very easy to think about. Now, if you read De Jour, he will have really very detailed, sophisticated explanations built on psychoanalytical model to show how work comes into play at a particular moment in psychic development. Okay, I, I, I'm not going to go into the detail here, but with De Jour, for example, you can have a very detailed story for why work is truly central in psychic development. As in, if you don't have good work, you're going to have a bad psychic development, basically. Now, social centrality of work is, is different. And you will find uh, insights in De Jour's work, but in, in many other authors. And of course, we always rely on, on classics as well, for example, who, who talk about these things. If you go back to the way I was trying to define work earlier on, not as a, just as a separate sphere of society, basically economics or production, right? But instead, if you think of work as activities that we engage in to produce value for others. If you think about it like this, then what you realize is that that's one way of looking at a collective or a human society as a whole. That is to say, for a human society to be, to maintain itself over time, to reproduce itself, as, as uh, philosophers and theorists say, for society to reproduce itself a lot of work has to go on. So work is what reproduces society, basically. What is it that, what is it that allows, allows the English society to be here tomorrow when the sun rises again? Well, the stories that you tell each other that you all believe in, you share similar norms and values, yes, all of this binds you as an English people, but None of this would make any difference. None of this would have any efficiency if you didn't have someone who maintained the power so that the lights can turn on, who drove the buses, who uh, laid down the roads so that buses can drive on it. You see what I'm trying to say? If you look at work as what allows society and the individual within society to reproduce themselves, if you think of work as what allows us to reproduce our individual lives and social life, then it's clear that work is entirely central to society. It's obvious, it's a, it's a childlike remark. There's a very famous letter of Marx to a late, a late letter to a guy called Kugelman. And he says something along the lines of, a child knows that a society could not survive more than a week if it stopped working. It's a, such a truism. It's so, it's so obvious, you know, it's not even worth mentioning, but there's a deep truth in it. No work, no society. Well, then work is pretty central to society. So that's the social centrality of work, I think, for me. Um, I, I like to use a big word that philosophers like to bandy about because it has, you know, strong evocative connotations, I think of work as those activities that allow us humans to build a world and to maintain a world. We build a little ecological niche in which we try to survive and thrive. Let's, you can think of them as a nation state, you can think of them as a region or a city or the entire planet, like the, the humanity on the planet. And obviously, we're not doing a great job at this, by the way, but clearly thinking about work matters a lot for, for meeting climate change uh, challenges. Anyway, so 
we create a world in we create our own little world in which we survive individually and together so uh, what allows us to build this and to maintain this in existence that's work so work is pretty central socially yes i mean of course other things are important like culture and and uh, historical narratives and, and values for sure and laws are important of course but all of this is held together by work i mean the narratives we tell each other to live as a community so all the narratives that make up the english nation they don't they, they're not reproduced by the sheer power of uh, being stories they have to be told and telling them is work kids have to be taught by the teachers about the myths of the english nation and newspaper writers have to write them up and historians have to do their work and novelists and poets and culture holds is is one of the glues of society but culture is a lot of work see so you you could say oh jean philippe you overemphasize work there are other things that hold society together like culture or law or norms or you know stories imagination you know there's a very famous theory that we are imagined communities so we share imaginary uh beliefs and visions and that's what holds us together yeah sure but a belief by itself holds nothing in the real world you have to be a bit materialist about this i think since the start of the pandemic a lot of people have had to work from home a lot more than had to before and many have noticed that the divide that they once had between their work and home life no longer really exists in terms of a, a really clear separation um and obviously for some time before that we've also had um you could check work emails on the weekend or in the evenings for example um so there seems to be this gradual breakdown of of the clear distinction that it seems to me once existed maybe i'm slightly idealizing that but just as a final question what do you think this tells us about work if anything um especially in terms of the social values that are kind of associated with work so if you if you if you start with the argument that work is not a specific sphere but a type of activity that is present in all social spheres then the first conclusion to the, the, the work from home a phenomenon through covid one conclusion could be to, to say that well there's work in the family there's work in the home and there's work outside of the home but it's all work so what's the problem you could say that um but clearly that's that's not satisfactory clearly there are lots of tensions and problems with working from home obviously there's many studies are being conducted today about about these problems you know um the problem of double shift uh has been particularly acute uh where so double shift is having to do both the work of formal wage work as part of your day and then work for the family homework or domestic work caring for children say pre covid in most in many situations um but we should not forget that it's a very recent uh way of organizing work but before covid the two types of work were organized in different places so office and home say or factory and home so you would have a double shift but you would kind of double yourself as a person you would be a worker in the office and a home worker at home whereas with covid we mostly women or many in many cases women had to do both at the same time and obviously that was impossible because you can't do two works at the same time i mean it's physically is literally a physical impossibility it's basically applying force it's applying force to an object and changes direction or its shape but so you can't have the same thing doing two works at the same time that's just that's just impossible and this is what was asked of people so the concept of social reproduction this idea that there's work going on in all social sphere that is not a problem for the covid crisis i'm not sure it gives much insight it's just it's 
pretty obvious that they have been tensions and problems with having to work from home. The crisis has revealed the fact that work happens everywhere um, and not just in the office. I mean, it's something that we all know is very obvious, and yet that's not how we speak. We speak of the work-life balance. And when we say life, we mean life outside of work and we mean home. But obviously, we all know that we work a lot at home. To repair the house, to look after the kids, to look after a partner. That's a lot of work. We know that. So our language does not match what we know about our own lives, I think. Um, so that's where this social reproduction angle, I think, is really useful to just shed light on all the work that's going on uh, outside of formal work. So there it is, the end of our 12-part series on work. It's something I'm really proud of and I've learned a lot from. And if you have too, then please do leave us a review wherever you're listening to this podcast. It really does help us to reach more people. And also, what would really help us is if you could share the series with anyone you think might be interested. Um, there are lots of other episodes I think you would enjoy. In this episode, I mentioned The Quantified Worker, which is in this series. We also have an earlier episode if you're into philosophy called Defying Death, all about transhumanism. As they say, there's no rest for the wicked, and we will be back next weekend with a new episode about AI regulation and politics in the US ahead of the midterm elections there. We'll see you then. <laughs>